chapter 9 of the book of Hosea, kind of a continuation of where we were two weeks ago. Hosea is telling the people of Israel, the northern ten tribes, that God is going to judge them for the various things that they had done against their God. Remember, Hosea began the first three chapters talking about himself, a personal uh, illustration that God used to demonstrate his relationship with the people of Israel through Hosea's relationship with his wife, Gomer. She had left him and uh, entered into a life of harlotry. He took her back. She left again. And this time, she entered into a state of slavery. And he came and got her back again, having paid the price of half of a slave, 15 shekels. And uh, that all is an example of what God has had to deal with with regard to his relationship with the people of Israel. They have prostituted themselves, committed harlotry, as far as God is concerned, because they had been worshipping other gods, it was just the same as Gomer having gone uh, into a relationship with another man while she was married to Hosea. So that illustration was a perfect illustration of God's desire to keep the nation of Israel to himself. And the fact that it ended in that illustration that Hosea took her back and bought her back from slavery indicates to me that that's precisely what God intends to do with his people Israel. It's going to be a few times alluded to in the ensuing chapters, but here in chapters 9 and 10, it is more of the judgment that God is bringing upon the people of Israel for their sins, their idolatry, and they're never wanting to turn from that back to him. Uh, they were a divided worshiper, uh, in a sense, because they did indeed still have Jehovah as their God. Many of them did go down into the territory of Judah in Jerusalem, where they were told to go three times a year for the th three special feasts that were designated by the Lord for them to go to Jerusalem and worship him there. Some of them did not, but others did. But when they went down to Jerusalem, they also would return back to their homes and offer up sacrifices to the Baals of the Canaanites. And it was a terrible, terrible situation, a kind of a duplicity. They were divided between God and the other gods of the Gentiles. And that's one of the things that are going to be spoken against here in chapters 9 and 10. So if you've got your Bibles handy, turn to again chapter 9, and we'll begin reading uh, from verse 1 of chapter 9 uh, some of these things that we've just discussed. He says in verse 1, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor of the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. Now they were, remember, prosperous. They really did not have a whole lot of issues as far as uh, the troubles that they were experiencing. Uh, they had a strong military. There was no threat, at least at this hour, uh, from other nations. And they were prosperous. Their land was productive, and they were blaming God for 
nothing at all, not giving him credit for anything at all either. They were giving the gods of the Gentiles that they were worshiping all the credit for their prosperity. And God is saying as a result of that, you're not going to benefit from all of the produce that will result in in the uh, amazing productivity that you are experiencing because it will just be taken away. And he's telling them, he's warning them, they will not dwell, he says, in the Lord's land in verse 3. I'm particularly interested in the phrase, the Lord's land, because he's talking about the northern ten tribes, not the land of Judah, the southern territory, but it's all his land, the entire land that he gave to them, that was what was known as the land of Canaan originally, and it was all the way from in the north around the territory of Lebanon down to the border with Egypt. That was all their land, but it was their land by virtue of the fact that God had given it to them to occupy. Realistically, it was their land, practically it was their land, but ultimately it was God's land, and it still is today. He said to them in no uncertain terms that they are going to be removed from his land. That is an indication of what God is intending as a punishment for their having committed this idolatrous, adulterous relationship with the gods of the Canaanites. They would be taken out of the land. He mentions Egypt and he mentions Syria or Assyria several times as the places where they are going to be taken. Ultimately, the Assyrians will invade the northern ten tribes and successfully remove them from the land with a very few exceptions. There will be a remnant of the people left behind, but the majority of people will be taken and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, not just Assyria and Egypt, but other places as well. But here in Hosea, he's warning them that they are going to be taken out of the land. In the latter part of verse 3, he says, But Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. So he's telling them, this is what your destiny is going to be. You're going to go back to Egypt, at least several of you will be, and some of you will be going to Assyria. And when he talks about eating unclean things in Assyria, keep in mind that the Jewish people had a very, very strict dietary regiment that they needed to follow in obedience to the commands of God given by Moses. Well, when they went into the foreign lands, they couldn't eat kosher foods. And so they had to live in that situation where they were forced to eat unclean things. Well, that was part of the punishment. Well, verse 4 continues and he says, They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. Wine and bread were very, very important aspects of or components of the offering up of sacrifices in Jerusalem. But they were not able or would not be able to go to Jerusalem to offer those sacrifices. The bread would be for their consumption and it would be minimal. The wine would be very limited also because he's going to judge them and he's going to take away all of that benefit that they had been receiving at the hands of 
those who had been so productive in their time of prosperity. That is going away. And he's telling them, it's not long now, it's going to come. Well, verse 5 continues and says, What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? You won't be able to do anything. But what will you do, he's asking. Then he says, For indeed they are gone because of destruction. No more will, be able, will they be able to worship the Lord because all of that will be destroyed. He says, Egypt will gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. It'll be a terrible time for them. Uh, there will not be any more prosperity. Uh, there will be a lot of uh, things going on in the country that will continue to degradate the society and the land in which they had been so prosperous. None of that is going to be uh, available to them any longer. And in Egypt, they will be buried there. It mentions, Egypt shall gather them up and Memphis shall bury them. Memphis is a territory in Egypt, just south of Cairo. We've been able to, archaeological diggings have found large burial sites in that region. And that's apparently what is being referred to here. Verse 7 says, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. So even their prophets, most of them now had been prophesying for the gods of the Baals. And, of course, they were considered by Hosea and by God to be false prophets. He says, your prophets are fools. That is amazing. They had many prophets who prophesied, but they would not listen to the true prophets. But they put in their place prophets of their own choosing. And you know, that's really quite similar to what we experience in the church. And it's what Paul warned against. In many of his writings, he emphasized the fact that in the last days, there would be people who would be false prophets, teaching false doctrine. And that is exactly what I think we are seeing in many of the churches around the world today. They want to tickle the ears of their congregants. And Paul warned against that. That's what they're there for. They want to, because of filthy lucre's sake, tell the people what they want to hear. Well, that's what was happening in Israel, and it's happening in many liberal churches around the world today as well. Thankfully, there is a remnant a remnant is a people who remains faithful to their God. David was one who remained faithful to his God. He still sinned. Of course, everyone knows that he was not a man that was perfect, but he never left his God. And he's a wonderful example of everyone who believes in God and wants to continue to serve God with all their heart, soul, and mind in recognition of the fact, though, that we are still living in these sinful nature bodies. We have the propensity to sin, and none of us can say we are without sin, but we have an advocate with the Father. That is what we are so blessed to know and uh, realize in these last days because of what Christ has done for us. Now, the Jews 
could have turned back to God at any time, but they would not. He was willing to let them turn. He invited them to turn back to him, but they rejected his invitation. And so the days of punishment are certainly very near. In fact, verse 7 says, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. So again, that is the case. He's warned them. They rejected his warnings. And now he's saying, it's time. These are a very few short years before the Assyrians will come to invade the northern ten tribes of Israel. And he says in verse 8, the watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Interesting that he mentions Gibeah, because Gibeah had a history that was recorded for us in the book of Judges, chapters 19 through 22, talk about this situation that had developed in this community known as Gibeah. Gibeah was in the territory of the Benjamites, just outside of Judea, near the Jordan River, on the east western side of the Jordan. Gibeah was a city that had been completely turned over to homosexuality. And in Judges chapter 19, I won't go there with you, but it would be worth your while to look up the information that's given there. It's a really sordid uh, story about what was taking place during the time of the Judges, relatively early on in their history. It was a time before David, or Saul even, no king had been in Israel. It was a time when only Every once in a while, God would raise up a deliverer, a judge. And it was during that time of Judges that this story in the book of Judges, in chapter 19, plays out for us. There was a man who was traveling, and he came into the territory of Benjamin. He was on his way back to Judah. But it was a long journey, and he was tired, and he needed to find a place to stay for the night. And he was going to stay outside in the city square. But a man came to him and said, No, you can't do that. It's not safe. Come into my house. And he persuaded the man to come into his house. So he and his concubine entered the man's house. And sometime during that night, there came a bunch of homosexual men who wanted to take that visitor out of the house and have sex with him. That's the basic story that is being conveyed. And he would not go out. And the owner of the house pleaded with those men to go away. This man does not deserve to be treated such a, in such a way as this. But they would not go away. And so he offered his concubine instead of himself to those men. And they proceeded to rape her and terribly abuse her all night long until the following morning she was found dead. That was how terrible they had become in their evil against the things of God. It was a completely unrealistic expectation that they had. And they were evil in every sense of the word. Very much like, I believe, what's going on in our nation even today. With the gay pride parades, the uh, naked marching of men and women 
in the gay pride movement and the things that they are saying. They've been saying for a long time. And basically, the phrase, we are after your children, was stated many years ago and is being stated even more frequently now. And they are indeed doing exactly, as far as I can tell, what the people in Israel were attempting to do in that day of the judges. Well, the story continued, and it was still even more gory and awful beyond what I've already described. But the nation of Israel, that was, by the way, all 12 tribes at the time, because they hadn't divided into two separate kingdoms at that point, but all the nation was in outrage when they found out about this evil thing that the people in Gideon um, had done. And, and in that city, in uh, Benjamin, the nation of Israel came against the city of, of, uh, of Gibeah, and with several thousand men, they were going to wipe them out in response to the evil thing that they had done. So not everybody in Israel was in agreement with their lifestyle. They were very, very small in number, except for the fact, though, that the Gibeonites got all of the people of Benjamin together and they fought against the other tribes of Israel. And there was a terrible slaughter of many, many thousands of Israelis during that time. The Benjamites ultimately were defeated and almost lost every single male in their entire tribe. God put a stop to that. He didn't want them to completely annihilate the Benjamites, but they almost did. And again, it's a sordid story about how sinful man, because of the corruption of that sin, and want them to make everybody else participate in their sin, how evil propagates more and more evil. That's what here Hosea is speaking of with regard to the people of the northern ten tribes. They have gotten so perverse, so evil in their ways, that God, through Hosea, is likening them to the people of Gibeah in the days of the judges. And he's going to punish them for their sins. Then in verse 10 he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. I'm reminded, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that first day of the week, he walked by a fig tree, and it was full of leaves. And he stopped to see if there were any early figs on that tree, but there were none. And remember, Jesus cursed that fig tree as a result of the fact that it bore no fruit. It's very similar to what Hosea just said about the nation of Israel. Read it again. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. So it's like the fig tree that should have been full of figs was not productive at all. Just like the tree in Matthew 21 that Jesus cursed. God here is cursing this fig tree. The fig tree is, I believe, a type of Israel. It's used in other places to speak of the nation of Israel. A fig tree was a special tree to the Lord, and as such, it became a type of the special, wonderful nation of Israel when they were serving him.
but it says they became an abomination like the thing they loved. Verse 11 says, As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. The Assyrian armies were terrible, terrible men that just took so many evil ways of harming the people that they conquered. Not only harming, but murdering them, women and children. They oftentimes would take a pregnant woman and slice her stomach open and take out the baby and kill the baby before uh, the woman before she died. It was They would skin people alive. They would behead. They would do all kinds of things to torment before they murdered the defo- uh, defeated peoples. So much so that many Israeli villages during the invasion of the Assyrians, knowing how evil they were, committed mass suicides to prevent the Assyrians from being able to do what they did on, a nas- on, a, on, a, on their way through their territory. That's one of the reasons, I believe, why you find in Jonah, the, the Old Testament book of Jonah, when God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Jonah didn't want to go. And why? Because he hated the Assyrians. Because of their abuse of all the peoples, he saw the terrible things that they had done. And he wanted nothing to do with going to them to preach the good news of salvation. God said, go. And Nineveh was the place where he used to go. Well, he went in an opposite direction, to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could get. And you know, of course, the rest of the story. God intervened and brought him back to Nineveh. And he was indeed... uh, a prophet in the city of Nineveh to proclaim that God was going to judge them if they didn't turn. But here, Ephraim is related to a city that's in Lebanon, still today, known as Tyre. And Tyre was a very prosperous city also in that time. And Tyre would be destroyed, as would be the nation of Israel. But Tyre wouldn't be destroyed until the time of Nebuchadnezzar, some couple hundred years later. But they were prosperous, and God is relating Ephraim to that kind of prosperity that they were experiencing. However, he says with regard to Ephraim that they will experience a tragic end. Verse 14 continues and says, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Don't let them even deliver their babies. It would be far better than if they were to be delivered and then have to suffer the consequences of an invasion from the Assyrian forces. He says in verse 15, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. He is a very, very powerful God. The only one true God. And they rejected him. If they hadn't 
he would have saved them from all this destruction. He's warned them. And later on in chapter 10, we'll see that in spite of all of that which he had warned, they still would not turn, but yet he will invite them to turn again. Our God is a merciful God, not only a God of judgment, but he does not want to be forced into that, but he will judge. And I'm convinced that as I look through these pages in Hosea, and I see so many similarities from that which they were doing compared to what our nation is involved in. And I wonder, how soon will this kind of judgment fall upon us? That's, I think, the thing that we need to take home with us when we go through passages like this. It's not something that happened 2,000 years ago and can be forgotten. Just because it's written on pages in the Bible and it is history does not mean that it cannot be, it must be applied in our situation as well. When we look around and see the depravity in our nation, when we see the sin and we see the destruction that has been taking place and had taken place in Israel because of that same sin, is it not true that we should expect the same thing? Because we have been given much much truth. And the more you know, the more responsibility you have. And this nation of the United States of America is without excuse. We have been given great knowledge, but we've snuffed it out. We've covered it. We've tried to eliminate it. We've rejected it. We want to turn away from the God that we proclaimed is the God that we are under. And that is still written on our currency. I wonder how long that will be before it's removed. My God will cast them away, he says in verse 17, because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. That's the destiny. The judgment is all ready to fall. Again, in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. But in verse 1 of chapter 10, we see this continuing condemnation of the nation for their sin. Verse 1 says, Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars according to the bounty of his land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. He says in verse 1 that they are likened to a vine. In chapter 9, he likened them to a fig tree. Here in chapter 10, he likens them to a vine. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, because there's another place there that speaks of this vineyard that God sees the nation of Israel as representing in his relationship with himself. Isaiah chapter 5 speaks these words. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Isaiah prophesied to the nation of Judah, the seven, the southern tribe, in the same time that Hosea was prophesying to the northern ten tribes of Israel. And they both refer to Israel, the nation, the entire nation, all twelve tribes, as the vine of the Lord that became corrupt and produced wild grapes and was a very great discouragement to the Lord God Almighty. And he judges them for that. They did evil in the sight of God. And again, here in Hosea, in chapter 10, Israel empties his vine. In other translations, instead of the word empties his vine, you might find Israel is a luxuriant vine. But the idea is a luxuriant vine that's full of fruit has been emptied, but it was for God, but they consumed it upon themselves. That's the point that he's making here. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Instead of going to him, they went to these other gods. But their heart was divided, he says in verse 2. They, some of them did go down to Judah to worship the Lord Jehovah God, but they came back into the territory of the northern tribes of Israel, and then they worshipped those gods and sacrificed on those altars, rather than sacrificing exclusively only to God on the one altar that he had prescribed in the city of Jerusalem. Shameful and disgraceful. He says in verse 3, For now they say we have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. As for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the narrows in the furrows of the field. They say we have no king. They had a string of evil kings, and Hoshea was the last of the kings before the Assyrian uh, invasion. And what we're seeing here is a realization that the king has no power to prevent the inevitability of this invasion. We have no king who can defend us. We have no king who can muster an army and defend us with a great military power that we once had. They recognize now that they are beginning to become more and more weak and less Weakness, or rather less strength, means more susceptibility to invading forces from outside of the nation. They were going to be judged, and they would find it would be like hemlock in the furrows of the field. Hemlock is a rather poisonous substance, and if it's spread in the fields, then it gives no possibility of producing anything, any vegetation that could be consumed. Total destruction. Verse 5 says, The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon, for its people mourn for it, and its priests 
shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jareb. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. The calf that they had constructed in Bethel, it will be taken away by the king of Assyria, and brought back to Assyria. They will not be able to worship their idol there or the one in Dan ever again. It will be destroyed. In verse 5, instead of the city named Bethel, he uses a different name that means city of idols. It's a reference to Bethel, the city where Jacob once saw the ladder that the angels of the Lord had ascended and descended upon. It's that very place. It was a place of worship, but they worshipped a calf instead of the holy God of Israel. As for Samaria, he says in verse 7, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. There will be terrible desolation in the land. There will be no produce. There will be no farming. There will be no... Uh, uh, evidence of prosperity anywhere in the land. And they will say, as he tells us here in verse 8, the latter part of the verse, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. They will be seeking to be delivered from the terrible things that are going to take place as the Assyrian army comes into the territory and, and continues to destroy and kill and maim. But that latter part of verse 8 reminds me of another New Testament statement that we find in the book of Revelation. I'd like you to turn there with me to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, there are several seals that are being opened, and with the opening of every seal comes a certain amount of devastation upon the earth. And when the sixth seal is open, there is a great cosmic disturbance that takes place. Perhaps an asteroid or something else that comes from the sky that causes the greatest trouble of all in every one of those seven or six seals. The seventh seal is yet to be revealed, but this sixth seal happens during the first half of the tribulation period. The first three and a half years of the tribulation are given to us in this sixth chapter. And if you read through the entire chapter, you'll find that it will not be a time of peace as they thought it would be. It turns into very quickly a time of destruction and terrible, terrible things will be taking place and many people will be dying. Some one-third of the population or one-quarter of the population will be killed in the first three and a half years. But here in the last portion of chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, the sixth seal is open. And he says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. 
Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They're calling on the rocks to fall on them, just as it is described here in Hosea in chapter 10. They shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. The similarity of those two passages is very, very significant, I believe. God's judgment is going to fall, and it'll be so severe that when it does happen, people who are on the earth at the time will take note of it. And again, notice in chapter 6, the reading of the various peoples that are involved. You do not see the church in that passage, because the church isn't there. During the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, the church is not there. In the second three and a half years, the church is not there because we will have been raptured. That judgment will fall on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. And all the peoples, slaves and free, rich and poor, officers and soldiers, whatever their status in life, they all will be experiencing the wrath of God but not us. Israel will experience the wrath of God, but not Judah, not yet. Judah will still continue for another couple of hundred years almost, or about 120 years actually, and they will be judged eventually for much of the same reason as the nation of Israel. But it's because of the fact that David and his dynasty were still in place and God would withhold his judgment against Judah for the sake of David, his servant. Here in Israel, none of the kings were good kings. There were very few prophets in the land that proclaimed truth. Almost everyone was serving the Baals of the Gentiles, and God is judging them for that. He says in verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity. It did not overtake them. Talking about that battle that I mentioned earlier that happened and recorded in the book of Judges where so many men died when the Israelites came against the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites did slaughter a large number of the Israelites, but ultimately the Benjamites lost the battle, lost the war, and almost all of them, every man, almost were wiped out. He says in verse 10, and this is key, When it is my desire, I will chasten them. When it is desire, he will chasten. Do you realize that God chastens those he loves? Oh, it has been the case. He chases, chastens us when we sin because He loves us. And it's like any father would do. As a father to his children, a father would chasten his children because he loves his children and wants them to be doing right things. 
And that's what God is talking about here. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. But I harness them. I harness her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow, and Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Farming terms. But what he's saying is, Ephraim is like a, a trained heifer. A heifer would be a female a cow uh, that would not have uh, been um, used for calving to bring forth more cows. It was probably a young cow before it was used in that way, in that way. But while it was strong enough and young enough, they used it to turn the millstone around the grill stone so that, uh, uh, the stone so they could crush the wheat. And it's interesting that he's saying a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain is what Ephraim was. The reason why a trained heifer would love to thresh grain is because they allowed the heifer to eat the grain as it was threshing in that job that it was given. It was always continually being fed. And so it was a rather enjoyable experience for a heifer at that particular time of its life. But here he's saying, I'm going to take you from that and you're going to be put in forced labor. You'll be put on a plow. It won't be so comfortable. It won't be so easy a lifestyle. It will be very difficult for you. And you'll break up the clods or the fallow ground. You know, the fallow ground was ground that had not yet been uh, plowed for harvest or for a planting of seed. It was very hardened soil. And so the plow had to be applied and it was very hard work. It was laborious to break up that fallow ground. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 12. And he says, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have, beaten, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. In the book of Judges, you'll find that phrase used extensively. They did what was right in their own eyes. And just exactly what they did then is what they are now doing here in Hosea's time. In the multitude of your mighty men, you did everything in your own way. Therefore, verse 14 says, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered, as Shalman plundered Beth, Arbel, in the day of battle. Another dashed in pieces, a mother dashed in pieces of under, upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Judgment is coming. God will chasten them. He will punish them for their sins. He mentions two transgressions in verse 10. The one transgression was obvious. They were doing things that were against the Lord by worshiping false gods. The second error was that they did not give God the glory for their prosperity. God is judging them for both of those. And again, 
I read these passages, I look to our own situation, and I see so many similarities. And I have to wonder, friends, how long will it be before God judges us? How long will He wait? He is a merciful God. And His mercies have been still, I believe, on this nation. But I see clouds coming. I see storms brewing. I see danger ahead. I see conflagration. I see destruction. And it can come in many different ways. God has lots of options. Whether it's by implosion, that's a real possibility. We can do it to ourselves, in other words. Our economy can crash. Our civil unrest can go unchecked and cause mayhem. Or we can be attacked. God has many options. But I believe He's going to use at His time, at the appointed time, whatever it takes to waken people up. He still will give opportunity for repenting. And I believe that's where we come in. We're here to be light, to be a refuge for those who might come to the Lord when things get really, really hard. I pray that we'll be ready to be used by God for that end. May it be so, in Jesus' name. Amen.